But there's something costly to the mission of the church when these properties come into disrepair. And exactly as you mentioned, you know, you see these big cathedrals on a hill that are empty, no cars in the parking lot. And people think, well, does that mean the church is dead? Is God dead? And I think, of course, we know he's not, and the church is not. But answering these questions is something that I think is deep to our faith, deep to our understanding of mission. And it's really an exciting opportunity for a healing of the world that I really believe we're called to in these days. Welcome to the Ron Huntley Leadership Podcast, helping leaders be a positive catalyst on the people they support, the organizations they serve, and the communities they live. This podcast will make you think, laugh, and grit your teeth with new determination to make your parish or business a place of transformation, passion, and purpose. If you're still breathing, you are powered for impact. Hello and welcome to the Leadership Podcast. My name is Ron Huntley. I'm so glad you've joined us. If this is your first time, a special welcome to you. I hope you'll find today both inspiring and informative. I want to encourage you to check out the uh, website. Go over to ronhuntley.com and subscribe. We have newsletters coming out. We have blog posts coming out. All this stuff is a new development for us that we're really excited, really just to equip leaders in the conversation of being great. Today, my guest is Graham Singh. Graham is a, is a Anglican priest in Montreal, Canada, which is one of my favorite cities in the whole world. And he also spent some time working transforming faith properties into community impact. And it's just such a neat combination. It's going to be a wonderful combination. Welcome to the show, Graham. Thank you so much, Ron. It's a privilege to be here with you. And it's so wonderful to see you again, celebrating many years of friendship and collaboration for the kingdom. And uh, just wonderful to be with other leaders around who are joining us on the podcast today. Wonderful. I agree. And one of the things I'm hoping that this conversation really begins to unpack is how we think about buildings, because in our tradition, all across the world, we seem to be in a season of shrinking and just maybe right-sizing or, or recognizing that we have more space than we have people going to church now. And, and maybe in some cases, more space than we have leaders to lead those spaces. And so it's a, it's a mix. It's a, there's a little bit of a dying going on and it's hard. It's a lot of big decisions being made. And, and, and I don't think anybody has the exact answers, but I think the conversation that we can have today is going to maybe just make that conversation a little richer maybe make that decision-making, maybe shine some ideas into that decision-making that might be helpful. So that's my goal today for our listeners and for our time together. Well, it's great to be uh, joining in on that wavelength. And as we were talking about, Ron, we're, we're thinking very much, aren't we, about uh, those who maybe come from different roles, perhaps they're uh, in the business world, perhaps they are somebody who sees their Christian or their Catholic faith. <clears throat> maybe there's somebody even from another faith joining, listening in to hear how Christians uh, ask about these questions. Mm -hmm. Perhaps somebody in a role uh, in stewarding the properties of the church, perhaps in a diocesan or a parish role as well. And uh, it's very much my heart that we speak into this and we go all the way back to scripture and look at the idea of creation beginning in a garden, mm -hmm. ending with a new city, having all kinds of problems through the story of scripture. We have a lot of bad cities, don't we? We have brother killing brother. We have the Tower of Babel, which ends up being destroyed and uh, causing a curse of not being able to hear each other in an urban context. We then have uh, temples and tabernacles, right? We have both a very significant built structures as well as those temporary structures. And we know this in the missional history of the church, don't we? There's times where there's almost a tent of mission, and there are other times where we have cathedrals and yes. God uses all of those, yet the son of man doesn't seem to have a place to lay his head. Uh, if we want to, you know, if we want to start with looking at Jesus property strategy, where, yeah, where would we right. go there? I think he, he didn't seem to have much of a property strategy other than he didn't seem to need any properties uh, and neither did his early followers. They had very little political power, very little wealth. And yet the Lord has blessed the history of the church through the building of schools and hospitals mm -hmm. and certainly parish church buildings. So there's blessing and there's battle and there's a trajectory of scripture. And there's a time in history, isn't there, where we can say, yes, look at what God has done through these properties, this gift, how we have stewarded them, the generosity of people that's come, you know, that, uh, that has been mobilized to see these properties happen. 
Then we also have a huge problem in terms of a colonial history and thinking about our indigenous peoples, particularly in North America, but we have that in Australia, New Zealand. We have the whole colonial history from the British Isles, other European countries. Uh, so it's a big subject and it's one that I think uh, we think about more than uh, than we sometimes are aware of. One of our archdeacons, that's a, an assistant to a bishop in the Anglican church. Yes. He said this, he said, an empty building, an empty church is to its city like the empty palace of a long forgotten king. Hmm. So there's something costly to the mission of the church when these properties come into disrepair. And exactly as you mentioned, you, know, you see these big cathedrals on a hill that are empty, no hmm. cars in the parking lot. And people think, well, does that mean the church is dead? Is God dead? And I think, of course, we know he's not, and the church is not. But answering these questions is something that I think is deep to our faith, deep to our understanding of mission. And it's really an exciting opportunity for a healing of the world that I really believe we're called to in these days. Hmm. How do you see that healing take place through the context of faith and churches and the turnover and our disrepair of buildings? Tell me a little bit more about that. The shortest way I could answer that, Ron, is I think it's in handing over control. Mm -hmm. And there we see a Jesus way. Uh, Jesus is not somebody who seeks after control, even though he has the control of the power of the world. And in giving away control of our buildings, practically what that looks like is sharing our spaces very deeply with other charities and nonprofits who need space in an urban environment, a village or rural environment. They need the roof that is over our head, which is often not as well used as it could be. And for me, that is the simplest possible. Sometimes the roof is done. <laughs> Sometimes the property needs to be demolished and we can build a new roof, perhaps new housing complexes. But the giving away of the power and the wealth that we have to me, I believe, is the source of all goodness in how we deal with property as the church these days. Wow, that's an interesting thought. So tell me how that's transpired. I know, you know, for those listeners in different parts of, of the world in Canada, Quebec is one of the probably the most secular province of all the provinces in Canada. And so and that's was also sure. the most Catholic province in all of Canada. And so also true big, gorgeous, beautiful buildings that are empty. I mean, you're not going to see more of those than you will in Quebec. Tell me a that's little right. bit about what you've seen. Well, that's an interesting uh, history to pick up. And I think uh, there are those, let's say, in the States who might have more friends who come from a reform background. They might know somebody who comes from, let's say, a mega church or an evangelical church. In Quebec, uh, that's more unlikely. It's more likely that somebody would come from a uh, 100% Catholic background that 98% of their family have just left. Okay, so whether you come from either of those backgrounds, I think it's good to remember the history of the Reformation mm -hmm. and the history of colonialism. So just imagine 500 years ago, we start having, what do we have? First of all, a protest about power and property from people like Martin Luther and Jean Calvin, right? We can say, well, was he, what did he think about transubstantiation? What did he think about the Virgin Mary? These were issues that came up later on, but the presenting issue was control that had gone out of control. And in the counter-reformation, the response within the Catholic Church, we see actually Catholic agreement with this, that, hold on, we, we, we misunderstood this. Political and religious control have gone too tightly together. We need to look at it again. But of course, the Reformation led to a split during the church at that time. And we have two main branches, right? One, and, and by the way, I find a lot of property people, business people in the property sector, they really appreciate thinking about this because they think, how do we get all these crazy properties? This, this is, you know, where did this start? It started with the Reformation, where we had some reformers called the magisterial reformers. They took over the Catholic buildings, okay? These are the Lutherans, the Anglicans. So it always cracks me up as an Anglican priest when people say, well, our Catholic architecture is so different from your Anglican architecture. I'll say, what are you talking about? We... We took over your buildings, <laughs> right? It's the same. But in the case of Catholic, Anglican, the, the Catholic and, pardon me, Anglican and Lutheran, the, that's what happened, the Magisterial Reformation. In the case of the, the Radical Reformation, the Reformers left the cities, right? These are the Baptists, uh, the Mennonites, for instance, and they said, we need to be out of the city environment and set up our own places, a set-apart people, a holy people. And eventually they said, look, 
how about we just get ourselves a whole new continent or two, right? Let's get out of here. And they joined this colonial movement. And so in North America, for instance, we have far more denominational splits, far more denominational properties than anything we saw in Europe. You see the Reformation and its desire to have your own property just explodes. So in a place like Canada, either side of the river, you have Anglican, United, Catholic, and Presbyterian on all four sides of Main and Main and the bridge, okay? Or Main and Bridge Street. Well, we see in some American cities, you can see a dozen churches on Main Street. Mm -hmm. So the, the history of where we started from on this comes from that kind of colonial act we have a huge challenge with our first peoples our indigenous peoples on this Mm -hmm. and that's where we kind of end up at this point okay in terms of property wow that's a great contextual that's a great context to put the conversation in um, because you're right you go to these towns i remember being in Truro, a town of ten thousand. there was one catholic church and 34 churches i mean it's a it's a small town 34 different churches. It's crazy. And if, you know, in Canada, just to dot across, and I know it's one of the things with a beautiful part of podcasts, we can kind of dot across a few wavelengths here. Just imagine the challenges of the property sector or the charitable sector right now. In Canada, uh, the cost of operating a charity has gone up by more than 36% over the last 10 years. The occupancy costs have gone up by more than 48%. So the cost of actually renting a space or operating a building has gone up faster than the overall cost and certainly right. faster than donations. So even as you said earlier, congregations trying to figure out maybe they need to right-size their use of space, actually the rest of the charitable sector is doing the same thing. And so those 34, 35 churches in a medium-sized town, we can consolidate those down. We can create beautiful new housing with some of those properties. And those properties that are the keepers, we can use those spaces to share the space more radically. We even get into, and this is um, a beautiful challenge, I think, between different faith traditions. We even talk about partial temporary deconsecration. What does that mean? Uh, In an Anglican context, we use our building on Sunday, on the Lord's Day, for worship and prayer and baptism. Uh, We were celebrating recently at our church 56 baptisms in downtown Montreal uh, over the course of the pandemic. That's all thanks to the Lord and his use of Alpha, and we run Alpha in English, in French, and in Farsi. We've also run it in Mandarin and Cantonese. So I baptized six people on Sunday where I haven't had a direct conversation with them about their faith, but I know that my Farsi-speaking leaders on Alpha have. And that's been the most amazing gift, you know, to see that kind of thing happen. We have another church that meets simultaneously to us in the church basement, and another one that meets on Sunday afternoons. Three churches, share that space on a Sunday. Then through the week, Monday through Saturday, we have an arts group, which is a circus company. And for those of you who don't know Montreal, uh, it's also the capital of the circus industry in the world. We have Cirque du Soleil is founded from Montreal. And they perform 50 shows a year, the amazing artists, just like Bezaliel, the temple artist, beautiful. And I'm thinking of 20,000 musicians in Solomon's temple. You know, this is the adorning of beautiful art. And in many cases, allowing secular artists to enjoy being in a sacred space and seeing their faith flourish as a result. We also have a refugee charity. Uh, we have two indigenous night ministries that operate out of our site. And over in total, 100 different organizations share that space. And that to me, Ron, is a vision. If we, we, We're not going to keep 34 churches in one town. There is going to be a consolidation. But where we have it, I would argue that when we share our space with non-religious actors, which may even require some, some juggling in terms of what we think of, in terms of consecrated or partial temporary deconsecrated space, mm-hmm. which is not an official Catholic thing, by the way. We can get away with right. that in the Anglican Church. Gotcha. But, yeah. uh, you know, those of you canon law folks listening in, you know, this <laughs> is the time to stretch your muscles <laughs> and think about this. Let's figure out how to do it. By the way, monks and nuns, Catholic monks and nuns have done this forever. They've always understood how to do mission and discipleship in not specifically consecrated spaces. So this is part of the Catholic charism to know how to do this. We need to rediscover our roots. And in doing so, I believe the giving away of that space brings blessing. And it brings an openness to those who say, hold on, 
do you really believe in your God so strongly that you're willing to share this precious space that you control? When we do, I think and my experience has been that they are more open to our discussion of faith as a result of that open-handedness. Well, it's interesting that you talk about that, Graham, because, you know, w- where my head goes, because, you know, staying really organized is always a stretch for me. Like, that's one of the areas that I need help with. And I can imagine having all those different organizations using the same space and trying to keep the booking straight and then parking and clean up and all the different just very temporal, practical things that would have to be considered. And and in one sense, I think, well, if you were going to do that, that would take a lot of work. But at the same time, you're saying, Ron, we've just celebrated 56 baptisms. And so it's not like you've gotten out of the disciple-making process in order to, you know, refocus on how you use your building and keep the lights on. It sounds like, no, you're actually staying laser-focused on mission, making new disciples, and finding ways to to use your space differently absolutely and we think of let's go over to the uh, the idea or the narrative of where are all the young people in the church these days right well let's look at what young people are working on actually the more efficient use of space is part of a sensitivity and responsibility to our environment uh, i'm privileged to say that uh, Laudato Si, the one cyclical called Laudato Si, as many are aware of, around loving our planet, uh, is going to be hosting an event with us, actually preparing for the COP15 Biodiversity Conference, which is coming up in Montreal. And the idea that we are caring for the environment by a more efficient use of space is something many young people care about. By the way, when they go on holiday, they're just as likely to rent a short-term rental as they are to go to a hotel. They'll maybe rent with a few friends, and it's a different way of looking at property. If you asked my mother if she was going away on holiday for three weeks, would they rent out their house to some other people? My parents would say, Under, by no means. <laughs> right. Whereas if my wife and I were to go away for three weeks, we probably would rent our house out to others who are visiting Montreal. Yeah. So younger people and those caring about the environment look at this sharing and the, the work that it takes, as you mentioned, as actually a response to our stewardship of the environment. Because of course, the best way to green a building is to use it and to do the work of making sure that when those heaters are on, that the building is used as much as possible in that way. But it also gives gainful employment to those people. So how many people want to come to the church in the role, in in a clergy role? Some. Mm -hmm. How many want to come and administrate an old-fashioned parish? Some. How many would love to lead a new social enterprise out of that beautiful place that's seen as the center of the city? Many more. And I think this is an opportunity actually to reach out to Christian and Catholic young people and help them get involved. Hmm. That is amazing. And so in the work that you do... It's not the priest running the rentals, right? Right. Not the priest running the rentals. Talk a little bit about that. Because... (laughs) You know, Forget it. The priest yeah, is fired. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The priest is like, yeah, that's a big heck no. And the bishops are saying the same thing. And so let's yeah. talk about it from the perspective of a bishop or a philanthropist or, yeah. a, you know, a diocesan staff member. Like, again, they have a lot of real estate that they're trying to figure out, you know, it's weighing the church down. There's a lot of priests have multiple buildings with not a lot of people in it. And they're, it's unsustainable. Uh, it's spiritually challenging. That's right. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you the story of my my ordaining bishop, who is the Bishop of London. Uh, we lived in the UK for 14 years, where I originally went for uh, grad school at London School of Economics, and then was working in advertising. Uh, I met my wife shortly after that period. We have two of our children there. But it was during that time at Holy Trinity Brompton that some of you know uh, through Alpha, where both my wife and I uh, found the Lord Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. Although we'd both grown up in the church, we'd not had that opportunity as adults to make that decision of faith. And it was from that environment that we began getting excited about changes happening in our national denomination in England, which is called the Church of England. And there, there was a team formed by the Bishop of London called the Closed Churches Team. And along with the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Church Commissioners for England, there was a whole new team set up called the Closed Churches Team. And in fact, I was ordained into that new team. So what do the bishops want to do? Well, you could look at another diocese or another set of churches like the Church of England and say, well, some bishops there, they created a new team to deal with this. And I think that's why we've seen 
success. We've seen over 100 properties reopen, parish properties, churches that were closed in England, and many of them are full of vibrant church plants. So from a bishop's point of view, I think it's an opportunity for mission. Mm. From another bishop's point of view, uh, one of our partner bishops uh, with the organization that I also uh, lead, the Trinity Centers Foundation, uh, is the Anglican Bishop of Huron. And that's in Canada, just in the area west of Toronto. And that bishop has 170 churches in his diocese. Before he got there, they'd closed 30. And there's a fund in place from the sale of the proceeds of sale of some of those 30 buildings, which is being used now to try to figure out what to do with those 170. And the Trinity Centers Foundation that I mentioned is the is really the instrument of the bishop to do that work. So we are working with bishops to instead of them hiring a director of property strategy which is a very difficult role to hire for. Mm-hmm. The bishop in this case has hired us as a team, and we're offering that service out to other bishops as well. So many bishops are trying to look at a portfolio level. However, and if we go back over to the philanthropist, who will usually say, okay, right, bishop, how many properties do you have? And let's figure this out, right? Let's roll up our sleeves. And of course, the bishop begins to get very nervous at this point because he doesn't have a portfolio. He has a, he has a whole collection of misfit parishes, frankly, some of whom have fantastic uh, boards and others have very problematic local leadership. Some of them have a priest, some of them really don't. And the bishops often struggle and diocesan executives to manage these properties on a portfolio basis. Mm -hmm. So the business person who will look for that and the bishop who hears that often there can be an emotional dynamic around that, which is, is difficult for the bishops. And frankly, it's difficult for our business people because they get frustrated and they think, why are you doing so little, Bishop? You know, And I, I don't want to hear about your alpha course because you clearly don't know how to manage any of the assets you have. And it leads to this kind of destructive conversation. Mm. That's one of the things we feel very strongly about. We're actually running a new course, uh, which is funded by one of our crown corporations in Canada called the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation and the Cheris Foundation, which is a Christian foundation. We're running a course for church board members uh, who are trying to face property issues. And uh, it might interest you, Ron, to know we, we created some characters. Um, called, we, called it, we created a character called Jeff, okay? And there's also <laughs> Jane. And Jeff is basically a business guy who's not much of a believer, if we're honest, but his mom or his grandma invited him to be on the board of the church and he felt he ought to do it out of family allegiance. No sooner does he agree to be on the board than his mother and his grandmother both die. And he's left on his own with this 50,000 square foot building, no priest, no money. And he's thinking, how on earth did I get here? <laughs> what decisions do I need to take? And uh, so these, the bishop, the philanthropist, together is a dynamic that I think has a lot of fruit to it, but it's a conversation that needs some stewarding. That's interesting. And so this course that you guys have have put together is to help facilitate those conversations. Yeah. So it goes through a few uh, pretty obvious things of, you know, the the, the narrative from doom to delight, Mm. (laughs) you know, a lot of people get in that situation and it's, it's like decades of dealing with the hole in the roof and, you know, not enough money to turn the lights on and just trying to get to that place where you could imagine your granddaughter running a world changing charity out of that place that you built. Um, Then uh, looking at issues of uh, uh, the director's responsibility. So running a charity, what are you legally responsible for? Those are some pretty important issues. I do get a little bit annoyed. Uh, I'll use that word. Uh, people talking about canon law before the law. And of course, Jesus doesn't go in that order. And it's important that we, uh, that we do adhere to the law of the land with regards to property, insurance, liability. And those are first order priorities that often get left aside. Of course, canon law is very important. Uh, But at times, canon law is shifting with regards to closed or deconsecrated places of worship, and we need to take attention to that. So the director's responsibilities, we cover that with a number of our lawyers uh, from our team. We get into issues of valuation, of housing, of how to deal with cities. Um, There are all kinds of things in there. Uh, We even have a session on the course uh, uh, about all the helpful people who come around to help you during these times. So we have Uncle John 
we gave them all character names as well as like uncle john the small time developer right. so he, he's a kind of developer who's not really done any developments but he has opinions about absolutely everything sometimes you have somebody who is a an architect that has all the answers before you have any idea who will use the building uh, architects are amazing uh, accountants lawyers they're all amazing at the right time right. <laughs> and often a parish facing those challenges is flooded with just not quite the right types of resources at the right time and they can get very confused uh, so yeah the courses you know the kinds of things we were talking about in preparing for today's podcast these are what a lot of faithful christians uh they, they are looking at these issues, right? They want to help on their church. They would love to just see 56 baptisms, <laughs> right? Well, you, you know, you say that. Like, but the roof's falling in. Right? Dioceses that don't have 56 adult baptisms or 54, I think oh. you were saying, you know. And so, boy, there'd be less. 54 yeah. adults and two children. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's. that's and we do have a lot of dioceses that are overwhelmed by these issues, right? Right. Of there, there aren't enough priests. There are too many holes and too many roofs. We don't know how to deal with these things. You know, actually, I think if we're honest, mm -hmm. property is weighing us down yeah. as Christians. We're not able to do the things we want to because it's so overwhelming. And, and there are many bishops who I know stay up at night and think, oh. what if I just didn't have these properties? What a blessing it would be. <laughs> You're probably right. And there's philanthropists, too, that are frustrated. They're looking at that saying, listen, we've been giving you money, giving you money. We don't see a lot of more lot new new people coming to faith, and the problems aren't going away. And we have less and less people giving less and less money to buildings that are are that still need repair. And it's like, why am I going to put good money after bad? And so, it, that's very real. It seems like a bit of a perfect storm. That conversation is very very difficult for all kinds of parts of the church because. Uh, we, we had one fellow, he is a philanthropist, and he came to us and we asked him to join our team for the Trinity Centers Foundation, and he cried. And he said, my family has been in the property business for more than three generations. And I've offered help to the church before. And they've said to me, great, come and be on the fundraising team or come and be on the welcome team so that you'll meet the people who will join the fundraising team. <laughs> and he said, no, I that's not what I'm saying. I, I'm a property professional. I'd like to help you with restructuring how we're dealing with these properties. Mm. And, and often we, we receive these critiques from the business people in our midst. And we respond with very churchy language that we actually know is not working. And at that point, that business person who's reached out, or it could be a community or a charity leader, mm. they reach out and they think, I tried. I tried to come and help them. And all they wanted to do is to get me to do the same old stuff that they and I know is not working. So this to me is an opportunity to listen deeply to our congregations. And it's a, I don't know, Ron, if you feel this as much as we do in the Anglican church, but clericalism is a major, major problem. And it starts, the first people to discredit clericalism are the clergy. <laughs> listen to the Holy Father, listen to Pope Francis. And the way he talks about clericalism, he doesn't like bishops calling themselves fancy titles anymore. He, he's trying to have people be closer. He's done a lot for distinctive deacons and having women in greater positions of leadership. I think a Catholic taking leadership from the Vatican would see that from the top, clericalism, nobody's trying to pour more oil on the fire of clericalism other than to get rid of it. It's not helpful. And I believe in the Anglican Church, we are seeing an opportunity to move away from it. How, how do you define it, just so that I'm on the same page as you? Priest knows best. Father knows best. Gotcha. Does Father really know best on how to manage the property? Gotcha. Why on earth would Father know best on that mm -hmm. front? Does Father know best on how to study the book of Nehemiah? Possibly, because that might have been what he did his doctoral thesis on. But father's, father knows best has gotten us in a lot of trouble, <laughs> Say, says a father in the end. You know, yeah. I've been a priest for quite some time now. And so clericalism, clericalism also diminishes other people. So somebody who comes forward and says, I feel prophetically, this is what we're called to as the church. Mm. If the answer is, well, you're not, a, you're not ordained. Why are you saying that? Surely that's a second class prophetic thought. Well, this does a number of things. One is we might miss the best answer. 
The other is for a society who is longing for God, and they're longing for the sacraments. They want to come in. The, the way of discrediting each other, even in the body of Christ, is such a is such a barrier to those who would like to come into the church. So to me, clericalism, that's a bit more of a definition there. It's uh, it's not helping anybody. Yeah, fair enough. And so I, I know, at least I think, because I don't know, because uh, I don't find myself in those spaces. I, a lot of times Catholic Leadership Institute does a lot of great work in helping a diocese consider how they're going to do these things. I only get involved in the coaching and of turning churches around and helping people learn to lead in new ways that get results they've only dreamed of. And so that's my passion. But I, I think in the Catholic Church, a lot of that, I think less of it, and I'm, geez, I could be wrong. Maybe it's the the priests at the local level, maybe with their parishioners, have some say in terms of the discerning and trying to figure things out. But I think it's in collaboration with the, the local diocesan staff and bishops. Like uh, That's my guess. Is that your understanding? For sure. And I mean, you and I have connections through Divine Renovation and yes. Father James Mellon. And of course, I would defy anybody to find a Divine Renovation church that doesn't have an explosion of lay leadership. Right. It's almost one of the things that you can find. You, you even see a church that has strong lay leaders and you say, have you been doing some divine renovation, by the way? Do you know they, Oh, yeah, of course. We go to those conferences, right? Yeah. It's, it's a mark of a thriving church. I'm not saying somebody has to go through divine renovation or alpha in order to get it. These are just tools that the Lord sometimes uses. Yeah. But uh, I don't think there are any bishops. There, here's, a big, here's a big claim. I don't think there are any bishops that are seeing radical missional growth around the world these days that have not realized the encouragement of lay leadership is an, is an essential calling for this time. Right. I hear it from bishops all over the place. And I think that, I think actually some of our priests and some of our local leadership in, in parishes, they need to realize the Pope's behind this your bishops behind this you you just need to walk in it yeah. <laughs> you know <laughs> do it right those distinctive <laughs> deacons you know isn't it exciting you see distinctive deacons who are out there celebrating the sacraments they're, they're realizing yeah there might be one priest for 30 parishes but actually look at how god is encouraging the ministry mm -hmm. uh, many of our religious catholic monks and nuns who are being called back into local parish ministry not as the parish priest but as a mobilizer of mission, you know, this is, I, I think the church discovers things in waves. And as much as we've seen some things go down, I think we're seeing an explosion of these kinds of new models of ministry and sharing our buildings fits perfectly with that. Mm. So let's, let's look at, uh, and, and just again, what are the options when you're looking at sharing buildings? Like, I guess they're endless in the sense of sharing, but it is part of that, I shouldn't say, but, and is part of that to hope, like if a church is going to turn around at some point in the future that they're able to keep their building and, and um, like, you know, if they only need a bit of the space now because they're so small and they're not as vibrant, then sharing the building's great. If there's a revitalization of faith and a regrowth of faith in the next 10 years, and it takes eight of them to turn that church around is, is some of the thought that, that they'll still have a building versus lose the building and probably never be able to afford to buy it back. Or tell me a little bit about that. I love that question. I, I think that that's uh, a great question for a parish to ask. What would the what's the crazy version of what's the craziest version of church life that we could imagine in the future? Um, I love the idea of gospel saturation. I don't know if you come across that concept. Oh, no. um, so it's a missional concept to say, let's reach. You know, isn't it that our calling is really to reach every man, woman, and child in a region with the gospel somehow? What does that mean, reach? Well, that they might come to know in an initial way something about who God is and his calling on their lives, that they would respond to that call, and that they would walk in that call and live in it until, until the Lord returns. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a wonderful vision. So is there one type of church that's going to reach that in any one region? Mm -hmm. Is it, you know, in one language, in one style, in one, is it the Latin rite or is it, a, <laughs> we could get into all of that, right? Well, I think we would probably end up agreeing we're going to need many different types of churches to reach a point of gospel saturation. Mm -hmm. I think we are clearly commanded in scripture to meet as God's people on the Sabbath day. And 
uh, let's call that Sunday. <laughs> I think if we were in Israel, we could have another uh, debate about what day that there's right. other places we might do that. But let's say Sabbath, the Sabbath day is on Sunday. I'd love to see our places of worship filled morning, noon and night with worship of different kinds. What does a worshiping community need? It needs Sunday space. It needs some office space. It needs some space to pray. Um, it needs places for things like alpha groups and things like that. And that's why one of the things we do with sharing, you mentioned the technical nature of sharing a building. Uh, we never do space usage for more than one year in advance. So every year at a certain point in each year, ideally for each building, the different users of that building are able to say what space they need. And eventually, there won't be enough space for all those groups because they're growing and they're thriving, yes. in which case we can, we can take over more spaces. We have so many more spaces that we're not using. But a church that's saying, do we think it's going to be us that uses the building 100% of the time? Or do we think it's us shared with other missional partners? Hmm. And then if we go to care ministries, so think about this. We've had a time where we thought all, all schools and hospitals should be run by the church, Right. Right. And we built some amazing schools, some amazing hospitals. In the evangelical church, you see some of these uh, suburban campus churches where there are ministries for every kind of care for the poor and the family that are run by that church. What we've seen recently is many of those ministries have spun out, have spun out of the church. They've either spun out of the diocese or spun out of that evangelical church. They're still there. The leaders of that organization still attend Sunday worship, their families are still there, but it's actually helpful for their organizations to stand on their own. Mm -hmm. So I don't think, I don't see in the future a time where the church is going to be the organizer of all of those different care ministries. But I do think under our roof, we can make space for those. Here's another point that I'd like to raise. I think in those care ministries, the insistence that if you want to work for my homeless charity, you have to come to my church you have to abide by my church's understanding of how to live your life. It's tough. And I'm not sure I really see Jesus doing that. I see Jesus involving people in terms of belong, believe, behave. Actually, Jesus, he allows people to belong before they've understood their belief and before their behavior has changed. So to me, I don't think we're going to come back to these fortress churches anymore. Now, I just say one major exception. Cathedrals are not what I'm talking about. Right. I think we're going to need cathedrals or cathedral type places in every region, in every city, places that are wholly set apart. They are much more of that temple feeling space than a tabernacle space. And I think it gives a stronger mandate for those cathedrals to be supported by a whole diocese, to be the majestic, incredible, beautiful places, the basilicas. I'm not talking about putting, um, a circus company inside a basilica. <laughs> yeah. Right. That's so neat. You know, it's funny as I, you're, you're, this conversation stretches me in that all the churches that I work with, I shouldn't say all, that's not fair, but I'd say the majority of them are jam packed with activity every night. Like they're very successful churches in their own right. Not all of them, but a lot of them. And I'm just, you know, they can't find space for their own, you know, for their own church yes. members in their ministries because the place is just hopping. And that's not what we're talking about, obviously, because we're talking about churches that, you know, are far that are underutilized. Yes. And, and I know there's a lot of people that can relate to that. Let, let, let's think about that a little bit further, sure. because I, I, I think that if you go back to the philanthropist, let's imagine the philanthropist who also runs a family foundation. That family foundation will likely these days be thinking about impact investing. So they will say, we not only want to grant towards the organizations we want to help, but we might even invest money with them on a friendly basis in order for them to better be able to do their work. And as a foundation, we'd like to find the best homeless ministry in our town, mm -hmm. the best group working on food security. And if, they, if they'd like more money from us, we'd like to even measure the impact that they have. So for every dollar they use, how much good can they do? How many units of good? And we can have many different ways of measuring impact. If we were to do an impact measurement on the way in which we use our churches, even some of the busier ones, mm -hmm. I think we'd find some room for efficiency. Uh, an easy one is sometimes you'll have a prayer meeting of 12 people in a room that can fit a thousand. 
well, that's not, that's not very helpful just from a square footage point of view, right? It'd be much better to have a side chapel built for that prayer meeting that was an appropriate size for the 12 people. Mm-hmm. So again, we have an environmental problem. If we heated those thousand square, you know, we seated that thousand seater space. I think often we, we don't look for necessarily the most city changing groups mm-hmm. to place into our buildings. Sometimes we do. But I think that in general, I find there's some room for efficiency. And I think impact investing and the way in which charitable foundations think about that is actually really helpful. It's a helpful iron sharpening iron. Neat. Yeah, it sounds like it. Because like the truth is, it's happening all over the world. Mm-hmm. Certainly in our tradition, uh, you know, and, and I know the Anglican Church in Canada is definitely being impacted by the 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 secular secularization of Canada seems to be a lot faster than our brothers south of the border. Um, mind you, sure. they're, they're feeling it too. No question about it. Yeah. We're seeing Ron in Canada, the sharpest decline in Christianity ever in recorded history. Uh, we're seeing a 16% in the census overall decline over 10 years in those reporting a Christian faith in Quebec. That's 20% amongst young people. It's over 20%. Mm. Amongst our indigenous people in Canada, it's now down 17% in the last census. And that's down to less than half of our indigenous people uh, following Christ. And that many more indigenous people, of course, are Christians than most Canadians uh, realize. But that often accompanies the idea that we also don't have any money. We've got these buildings that are troublesome. We have declining, you know, it's either people with you know bums in seats and in pews or it's those reporting their christian faith however at the same time the church has never been richer in terms of finances our wealth has grown catholic wealth anglican wealth evangelical wealth to the point where i think the world is asking and i think the lord is asking us how are you using the wealth that you have i look for instance, to uh, we were talking a little bit about Catholic men and women religious. I think they're an incredible force for change. There has traditionally been a separation of monastic money from diocesan money, and uh, there are all kinds of uh, history lessons to learn from that. But just imagine the Lord was looking at us, saying, "My children, you are asking me for growth in the church, in my church." You're asking for the resources that you need, but I already gave them to you. You just need to share them. And by the way, don't go asking for those who don't know me. Don't go asking for their resources too quickly. Have you shared what I've already given you? Mm. In Canada, and for American listeners, you could kind of multiply these numbers by 10. The whole charitable sector in Canada is approximately $100 billion Canadian. Mm -hmm. Of that, at least 15 billion is Catholic religious orders on its own. Right. Monastic money. That doesn't include diocesan money. Mm-hmm. If you take church pensions across all churches, that's $6 billion of clergy money. Mm-hmm. So these are huge, huge amounts that we have not yet deployed to do the work that's ahead of us. And it could be that we've kept that money aside from wise stewards who've, who've done the right thing. But I really believe now is the right time when the poorest of the poor are struggling so much after the pandemic. And when you think about the things we have to offer, not only an immediate alleviation of poverty, but the deep help with relationships in building back families, this is the kind of work we need to lean into, I believe, Ron. And we have the money, we have the places, we have the people, we have the vision, and we have the truth. I think we now need the humility to break down the boundaries of the wealth that we hold. And I truly believe it's part of our calling to see this afresh. Yeah, it's, you know, it's interesting because I, I remember going to speak, Father James and I, to a group of bishops in the U.S. And uh, it was a wonderful, you know, group of, uh, of fellows. St. Paul <clears throat> Evangelization Society brought them together and it was a wonderful, but I mean, I remember at breaks talking to bishops and the whole diocese have gone bankrupt. And, and so, you know, when you yes. say that wealth, I'm thinking, wow, where I, I don't, I'm not attuned to the money that you say in terms of our tradition and not that it's not there in some pockets, but I, I've 
yeah, I just don't see that, but I don't know. Yeah, that's, yeah. I don't see that. I should probably, on the advice of counsel, uh, stop talking too much about that. <laughs> uh, you know, there are some important legal issues here, and uh, and there are organizations that are not connected to diocese that have been places where wealth has been oh, placed. Okay. And, of course, the government knows exactly where that money is. I see. And because some I of think the work you important. do is with yeah. governments too, isn't it? Like yes. you do some of the like municipal levels and yep. and just really making those connections for people, isn't there? There is. And I think, you know, uh, there have been some very, very challenging lawsuits and there are lawsuits still ongoing. Uh, we have been helping with the aftermath of one in Eastern Canada where 34 churches were liquidated in a bankruptcy of a diocese. Mm. So imagine the impact on the diocese Imagine the impact on the victims of the abuse oh, that happened in that case. It's 140 people uh, from Mount Cashel Orphanage that was related to that story. But imagine also those communities, 34 communities in Newfoundland, Eastern Canada, who've now lost, and it's a very Catholic area of Canada. They've lost what was their community center. Mm. Uh, so the destruction, I think, and of course, this is very biblical, right? To see things being built up. And to see them torn down, of course, the abuse is not biblical, but the idea that, you know, what matters more, that we hold on to these properties or that we hold on to the Lord? And I think we will see bankruptcies. And uh, we also need to be very, I think, realistic about the wealth that we do have and make good plans. And, and by the way, our younger people, they know about this wealth and they want to see us using it. And when they see us avoiding questions about how to use it strategically, they don't really stick around for the argument. They just leave. Mm. And I believe that the converse could also be true. If we could radically open up our books, open up our strategies, ask the world, including those who've left the church, how, if we could radically redeploy the wealth that we have, what would that look like? Would you be willing to come and hear about Jesus again and think again about who he is. I think the fruit in mission and evangelism is, is, is really, a, it's really worth it. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. It, what I realize is as we continue to speak and the, the conversations that you're in, they're really neat. I'm not in those conversations. Like it's so fun to to break this open yeah. with you because I I can tell even just by some of the insights that you have, I don't I don't have them, and so it's really fun to be able to talk about this stuff and break it open. I know that uh, it's been fun to watch you talk about those young people. COVID was a really interesting experience for me. Wanted to because of my involvement with Alpha and having written the book Unlocking Your Parish with Father James. I just saw this as a great opportunity because I've just seen uh, there's just so many people that aren't close to my local church where I'm running Alpha. And I just thought, what a great opportunity to do it online and maybe engage people in this conversation. So it was a treat. But I asked my son and my daughter if they would uh, both host a small group online with me and invite their friends. And they did. And one of the things that I found with them was real eye-opener for me is my generation, I'm 53, has a lot of baggage because of things like Mount Cashel yeah. and, the, and the likes. And so there's a lot of fallen away Catholics who are just not interested anymore. They've had just enough Catholicism to know they're not, they're not interested. Yeah. And people have been hurt, but their generation, they came through Alpha. They didn't know anything. Their, their parents don't go to church. They've never been in a church, some of them. And they had no baggage. Like they literally had no baggage. And yes. they, came, they came to faith online during COVID because of Alpha. And I realized there's a demographic difference in terms of how people approach faith and what they're, they're kind of um, wrestling with. And, I, and, and maybe some of that is church wealth. I, I certainly didn't run into that, but, but it might be the case. You know, it might be the case. But I, I found that there was far less baggage with young people in general than than there is with my generation and the you know the walking away that that we did on mass um in this you know in this time in life it's it's there's a lot it's complicated isn't it oh i think you're on mute graham i think you hit me back so. it is it, thank you so much ron and 
it, it is wonderful. And isn't it wonderful? It is a challenge, but isn't it wonderful that we can have parts of the body that are working on alpha amongst young people? And we can have other parts that are attending to some of these issues around yes. property and others that are there around parish renewal. We don't all have to be working on the same things. Amen. What I do believe is that we have given a lot of attention to the need to rethink evangelism. Mm -hmm. The idea of Bible bashing, uh, that's not a phrase that's not a great phrase, but, you know, hitting somebody over the head with it, it just doesn't work. I mean, even if it was a good idea, which I don't think it is, uh, it's not effective. Uh, I don't know anything more effective in terms of evangelism and discipleship than Alpha. That's all I've ever done as a church planter. I've had the privilege of leading four churches now. And all we've ever done is get an old building, a pack of Alpha DVDs is what we used to have. Now we just get it on some other computer and and some guy with a guitar i mean that's that's about it that's a church for us yeah and eventually the sacraments come back mm -hmm. and eventually the life of the church is formed mm -hmm. and that's that's what our anglican church planting model has has looked like but it's a fairly simple model but it's been very effective in my experience mm -hmm. however I don't think we've been as transparent about thinking about these issues of our wealth and our property. And I think now is a time where if we could be more honest and more direct and more transparent and listen to that philanthropist and that property person and that arch these people who we have in our midst who've been trying to solve these problems for, for a long time, I think we would complete a part of the future of the church. Look at the environment. Look at how much we've seen mm -hmm. of our need to steward the environment. To me, this is actually part of that. And if we could do that, we wouldn't all need to be working on it. But we'd be a bit more strategic, and I think we'd do some more of it together. Graham, this has been such a cool conversation. Thank you so much for having it with me. I've learned a ton today. And, and I hope that and I, and I hope that this conversation has been helpful for bishops, staffs and staff, parish leaders at local parishes who are wrestling with these things. I think you've unpacked a bunch of ideas that are worth having conversations on. Uh, thank you for what you do. It's really important work. And I'm so grateful. And, and, and also for 56 baptisms during COVID. Like, thank you Amen. for that, too. Thank you, Lord. Thanks for keeping it simple and yeah. continuing to bring people home because it's wow. it's awesome. So God bless wow. you, my friend. All glory to God. And thank you, Ron, so much for our friendship. And uh, thank you for everybody listening. Uh, what a privilege to, to have this time to talk together. Terrific. So again, my friends, thank you for listening. I'd encourage you to hit the thumbs up if you're watching on YouTube. Subscribe. Go to the website. Subscribe to the newsletter. Let's keep this conversation going. Thank you for all you do to make your church and your community an amazing place to be. God bless you all. I want to encourage you, as you lead this week, be faithful to God and generous to others. See you next time. And remember, if you're still breathing, you are powered for impact.